Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 515 with Susan Fowler. Susan has spent much time researching motivation, so she shares those insights with us here. So you'll learn one, major misconceptions about motivation. Two, the three keys to mastering your motivation. And three, an overlooked leadership practice to improve engagement. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F515. Now here's Susan's story. Susan Fowler is dedicated to helping others master their motivation and achieve their highest aspirations. A sought-after speaker, consultant, and motivation coach, she shared her message on optimal motivation and thriving together in all 50 states and over 40 countries. Susan is the best-selling author of Why Motivated People Doesn't Work and What Does, and co-author of Self-Leadership and the One-Minute Manager with Ken Blanchard. Her latest book, Master Your Motivation, Three Scientific Truths for Achieving Your Goals, released last June. Susan's also a professor and the Master of Science in Executive Leadership Program at the University of San Diego. Thanks to Susan for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Susan. Susan, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. I've been trying for years to be awesome. I hope there's something that I can help other people um, be awesome with. Oh, I definitely think there is. You've done some research in the realms of motivation. Maybe for fun, could you start by sharing a surprising and fascinating insight you've picked up from your research into motivation? You know, there are so many surprises. I've been studying motivation now for over almost 25 years, been very involved in the research community. And there are thousands of amazing academicians and, uh, and behavioral and neuroscience researchers out there. But what's most surprising is, I think, that we've just had this totally wrong impression of what motivation is. And it's hard to change our perspective because a lot of our notions about motivation that were developed during the B.F. Skinner days where we did all the research on animals and operant conditioning, which is still so, you know, carrots and sticks. It's so prevalent in our society. It's embedded into our psyches that it's hard to change our perspective because it's literally built into our language. So, for example, when we ask a question like, are you motivated? Or if you ask yourself, am I motivated to do something? That's just the wrong question. That question literally sets up a paradigm that we now know is not true. So I think 
Um, what's most surprising to me is how powerful, exciting, and valid and um, applicable the new science of motivation is, and also how challenging it is to change people's perspectives based on what they already know, even if they know it doesn't work. So could you give us a short synopsis of what would be the current model of motivation and then how is that broken? Thank you for asking that question. Um, You know, there's basically three prominent theories of motivation that are embedded, for example, in leadership competencies in the workplace or that the the workplace tends to use um, to reinforce uh, their ideas of motivation. So one is the one I just mentioned with B.F. Skinner when they did all this research on animals and realized they could get, for example, they could get pigeons to do what they wanted them to do if they gave them a pellet and it was called operant conditioning. And so so the rationale was, wow, we can get pigeons to do whatever we want them to do. Maybe we get people to do whatever we want them to do if we just give them something. And so that's where the carrots came in. And then people thought, well, the carrot's not working. So let's use a stick. Let's give them pressure or threaten them or, or make them fearful. And the thing is, is all those things do motivate us, but it's what's called suboptimal motivation. It's the kind of motivation that like the carrots is like eating junk food. You know, when you eat junk food, your blood sugar rises and you get a burst of energy, but then you crash. And, and when you're eating all that junk food, it might, you know, give you that burst of energy, but it's not healthy, especially in the long run. But even in the short run, it diminishes your creativity, your innovation. And so that's really prevalent in the workplace. Uh, Another thing is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs that is the most popular idea of uh, or theory of motivation in the world. And Maslow didn't even come up with his that triangle, Maslow's triangle, the hierarchy. He was writing about psychological needs and really started people thinking about psychological needs instead of biological drives. But the hierarchy has never been proven. And even Maslow would be dismayed if he thought people were actually just using his a theory that came out in the 1940s as their basis of motivation. And then the other one that's really prevalent, and I see it all the time in the workplace, is achievement motiva- motivation, or this whole idea that, you know, what people really want is power and status and and clout and money, and that leaders especially have this kind of special motivation to uh, achieve without thinking about the implications or what's behind the achievement and what they're doing to themselves and others. So what we really need, basically, I would say we've been in the dark ages when it comes to motivation. And yet there is just a totally different way of perceiving and using motivational uh, science. And that's, that's what my, you know, that's my my, my life purpose is to get the message out there so that people can do things differently. All right. So then what is the optimal theory as far as what we know now in terms of what really does motivate people? Well, they're operational, but at a suboptimal level. I think what is really basic is that people are not lazy. All right. So we have this notion that people are disengaged at work and oftentimes they're disengaged because we're not we're not motivating them enough or we're not motivating ourselves enough we don't have enough perks or benefits we got to we have to make everything a game to make it fun because otherwise we wouldn't do things but that's just the opposite of what 
science says about our human nature. Our human nature is we want to thrive. We want to have meaningful challenges. We're actually motivated by meaningful challenges. We want to make a contribution. We want to feel like we're doing meaningful work and be connected to people. And so what the research has shown is that there are three psychological needs that when these three needs are satisfied, when we can create them or when we are experiencing them, especially in the workplace, but this goes for life, then we are going to thrive. And when we thrive, again, we're going to be more productive, more innovative, creative. We're going to have a sense of well-being and we're going to generate positive energy that is sustainable. So the, the key to motivation is these three psychological needs that we can create because um, they're real and they're things that we can actually create in the workplace. If you're a manager, you can help create it for others. And if you're an individual, you can create it for yourself. And that's, that's really what my book, Master Your Motivation, is all about. It's about how do you create your own choice, connection, and competence. Those are the three psychological needs. And the choice is where the key comes in. It's like you choose what matters to you. Well, actually, it's interesting. Choice is what gives you a sense of autonomy. Um, otherwise, you feel that you're being imposed on that. You know, there's a difference between getting up in the morning and saying, oh, I have to go to work. I have to support my family or I have to make money so that I can live versus I'm choosing to go to work. I'm choosing to make a living. I'm choosing to live a certain lifestyle. You know, the reason that diets don't work, think about this. As soon as you go on a diet, what do you say to yourself? You say, oh, I can't eat certain things. You know, I can't eat that muffin. I'm on a diet. So what happens is immediately through your own language and through your own interpretation, you have just eroded your perception of choice. So you've just eroded one of the three key psychological needs. So we think, oh, wow, I can't have that muffin. What's the first thing you want? You want that muffin. And you think it's about the muffin, but it's not. It's about your need for choice. It's about your need for autonomy. And so what we need to learn and part of the skill of motivation is to be able to say, I can choose to eat this muffin or choose not to eat this muffin because I have a goal to lose weight, and then we'll talk more about that in a minute, because I have a goal to lose weight, I am choosing not to eat this muffin. It seems like just a reframing, but it's more. It's, it's, it's literally creating um, a perception that stimulates um, a part of your brain that activates this uh, psychological need that is absolutely necessary for what we call optimal motivation. So choice is your interpretation or internalization that no matter what's happening around you, you have choice about how you react to it. Well, that sounds like one great practical tip right there. You don't even say, I can't do this or I must do that. It's like, well, hey, because of this, I'm choosing this. And so it keeps that choice factor alive and functioning for your motivation in that domain. So that's already very handy. Thank you. Yeah, think about this. It's so funny because people will send out like a meeting invitation. They'll call the meeting, send out an invitation, and then it pops up on their calendar a couple of weeks later and they go, oh, I can't believe I have that meeting. I mean, they called the meeting, but just the fact that it's on their calendar can oftentimes trigger that thing of, oh, I don't have a choice. I have to go to that meeting. 
And, and so we actually do it to ourselves all the time. And could you then maybe share a fun story that illustrates there what's really possible in terms of someone who felt unmotivated and then dug deep and then was able to nail the three needs and tap into some great motivation to do great things? Well, can I just point out, Pete, that just in your very question, which is a kind of question that would be normal to ask, but it actually sets up the wrong paradigm of motivation. So we use the term unmotivated. What the research shows is that you're always motivated. You're always motivated. The question is, what type of motivation do you have? And so if you're motivated by money or power or status or image or even uh, fear or guilt or shame, you're motivated, but you're motivated what we call suboptimally. And so you're either not going to take action or you're going to take action, but you're not going to be... um, persistent at it. So that's the first thing I really want people to, to maybe get in their heads is that we're always motivated. And it's really important for us to think about the type of motivation that we have. And then the other thing is that we tend to think we need to have motivation to achieve great things. And so I would, I would just challenge, what is a great thing? What does that look like? And what the research will show is that just achieving small everyday goals is more satisfying than some big pie in the sky. And I know we need to have those big, hairy, audacious goals, but what really gives us day-to-day satisfaction is seeing progress. And, and it's, it's the, it's sometimes it's the mundane things in life. I'd love to just to share one example of myself. That's just a, a little thing. So I travel a lot for my work. I do a lot of international travel. And so I go through security at the airport a lot. And that's something I will never be inherently motivated to do. In other words, I will never find that just naturally fun or what people call intrinsically motivating to go through security. So one day I, I'm, I'm at security and, I'm, and I, I get all tense. And I, get, I feel really um, a lot of pressure because I'm usually in a hurry. And also, I just, I hate it going through there. So I want to get through quickly. So I'm like looking at all the lines and I'm thinking, which of these lines is moving fastest? I really need to get through the line fast. So I'm looking at the TSA agent to see which one lets you through best. And I'm looking for lines that are short. And I'm also looking for a line that doesn't have like a family in it with a bunch of kids. This reminds me of the movie Up in the Air, where he's analyzing and profiling all the different people in the airport, where he's trying to figure out who will probably go faster. Okay, so you got your statistics and your heuristics there and you're going, all right, I'm with you. Yes, exactly. So I find a line that I'm going to get into and then I stop and I just have a mindful moment. And this whole concept of mindfulness is so powerful when it comes to motivation, just to be aware in the moment, you know, what am I experiencing? And then in that moment, I thought, wow, I'm feeling pressure and tension and stress and all this stuff. And I think, what am I doing? Susan, you talk about this stuff. This is what you, you write about this. You research this. What are you doing to yourself? And I thought, okay, I am obviously suboptimally motivated to go through security. What do I need to do differently? And I thought, I need to shift my motivation. And this is where motivation as a skill comes in. So I thought, I've got to practice what I teach. So I started thinking, okay, one of the reasons I'm suboptimally motivated is I don't have choice. 
I have to go through security, right? I have to go through that. And then I started thinking, well, I don't really have to go through it. I don't have to travel. I don't have to do this as a job. You know, I could choose to do something at home, to stay home and write. And I thought, well, I'm choosing to travel and I know how much I love it once I get there and I'm working with the people I'm working with. So I am actually choosing to go through security. Okay, I'll give, I'll give that one up. And then I thought, I'm really competent. That's the third psychological need. I'm really competent. I've been through a million times. I'm, I'm pretty well geared up to do it. But what was missing for me, really missing for me in that moment was connection. And connection means that you have some deeper meaning. You, you have a, a sense of the values that you hold or that you're making a contribution or that you feel um, an affinity with the people you're working with. And I realized I didn't have any connection going through security. I'm not sure it really works. I'm not sure that, you know, I, I'm kind of thinking sometimes that it's just a bureaucratic thing we have to do to make people feel safe, but I'm not sure it really works. Anyway, I have all these re- negative reasons um, not to go through security. And so I thought, okay, but how do I shift my motivation? Well, in order to shift, what you can do, um, one of the, the ideas is to align whatever you're doing to a value that you have. And so I started thinking about my values. So it means you have to have values and know what they are. And the first thing that popped into my mind as a value is learning. I love learning. I've always been a teacher, um, a learner. And I said, okay, what can I learn going through security? And I realized I could learn patience because I obviously am not a patient person. It's just not my personality type. So it would be something I would have to do consciously. And I said, wow, okay, I value learning. I'm going to learn patience. So I found the longest line and it had a family. It had a family with a father, a mother, and two kids. One was a toddler, one was a newborn. They had more stuff than I realized you could even take through security. And after standing behind them, um, they were just struggling. And I finally said, would it be okay if I held your baby? Maybe it would be helpful. And they said, oh, would you? That'd be so great. So I'm holding this baby, Pete, and I'm realizing, wow, I'm really having a wonderful moment here because I love babies. I love holding babies. And so they go through security and I'm going, excuse me, uh, you want your baby? <laughs> go, oh my gosh, yes. So they grab their baby and I help them on the other side um, and, you know, packing up and everything. And I go to my gate and I'm thinking, wow, that really worked out great because I love holding babies. And I see the father coming towards me and he says, oh, I'm so glad I found you. He said, we, we just feel terrible because we never even thanked you for your help. He said, this is the first time we've ever traveled with two kids. We had no idea how hard it would be. And we don't think we could have even gotten through the, the security thing without your help. And we never even thanked you. So I just want you to know you made our day to day. You, you, you really helped us. I said, oh, no, 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 thank you, thank you. I, I love holding babies. And so we're going back and forth. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I get on the plane. And I'm reflecting, which is part of the skill of motivation. And I'm reflecting on what just happened. And I realized I not only had experienced what we call the integrate, excuse me, the um, inherent motivational outlook. It's that I actually enjoyed holding the baby. That's something I love to do. But I also had experienced what's called integrated motivation because my life purpose is to be a catalyst for good. And in that moment, I had helped a young family and they told me that I did good. And that felt so satisfying. I can't even tell you the the joy I experienced in that moment, that sense of well-being. And I knew that from then on, I would go through security differently. Now, that's been years that that happened, years ago that that happened. 
And anyone who travels with, with me or, or who's seen me traveling will tell you that I enjoy going through security, not because it's fun going through security, but because I'm able to live my values and I'm able to live my life purpose every time I go through security. So I'm always on the lookout for an older couple that I can help or a young couple I can help or a single mother traveling or just being nice to the TSA agent who is getting a lot of back talk from people. So that's literally changed the quality of my travel experience, which is a huge part of my life. Well, that's lovely. So then it seems like in the terms of what we've discussed here, so we've got the choice element present in the story. Hey, this is the career I'm choosing. I prefer fast and being with people in those places. And part of that is security. For the connection, we've got, okay, what are my values? And then you've come up with the learning and then what's something I can learn here? And patience is a thing you're going to learn. You're going to be patient in that context with the security line and then forming connection with the folks who are there. And so confidence, I guess, did we touch on that? Well, the confidence I already felt like I had because I'm really good at going through security. But I have to tell you, I think that's a really good question, Pete, because I actually feel more mastery now going through security because because I know how to do it. I'm able to help others. So what the research shows about these three psychological needs of choice, connection, and competence is that they're all totally interrelated. And I call it the domino effect. If you are missing one, the others will fall. So if I said, oh, I'm choosing to go through security, but didn't have the competence to do it and didn't feel like I was making progress, or if I was going through security and I was choosing to do it, but I found no meaning, no connection with other people or to my values or to my life purpose, then all the choice in the world wouldn't matter. And you're not going to find connection if you don't feel a sense of choice. You're going to feel pressure and tension and stress. And you're going to feel like people don't care about you if they're putting pressure on you. So they're all totally interrelated. Okay, that's great. Well, then I'd love it if we think about the professional workplace here. Let's say someone, they've got a project and, you know, they're just not feeling it so much. They're responsible for it. And so... It seems like day after day, rather than finding or making the time to proactively advance that project, they tend to say, oh, what's in my email? My desk needs to be tidying. So they're kind of procrastinating or putting it off. So they're doing some of the less value work instead of pursuing this project, which is important, although it doesn't really light their fire in terms of, you know, they're just not feeling motivated with that over the course of many days. So in that world, how would you recommend we apply some of these principles to to summon or stir up or, or whatever you want to call it? to get those motivational juices flowing. Yeah, when we're suboptimally motivated to do something, how do we shift into optimal motivation? And so how do you apply the skill? And, you know, there's, I've got so many examples and especially in my book, there's one that I love, um, like, you know, filling out expense reports. I mean, who who is actually quote unquote excited to fill out expense reports? You know, the only reason you might do it is you need your money back, but you it's it's drudgery. And so what I'm encouraging people to do to create choice, connection, and competence is to ask themselves, okay, what choices do you have? And as soon as you ask that question, what choices do you have? Just the idea that you have choices will often help you make the right one. 
But if you say, what choices do I have? And you say, well, I could choose not to submit my expense reports. Or if you're working on a project, like you were saying, I could choose to not work on this project. Or I could choose to just do the minimum, put in the minimum amount of effort and just get by and hope that it's okay and that it doesn't make me look bad. So, you know, what you do is just go through in your mind. And this just takes a couple of seconds to say, okay, what are my choices? And then how do I feel about those choices? And so if you get in touch with the fact you have choices, I mean, when you're laying in bed in the morning, just get in the habit. And I do this every single morning. I go, okay, what choices do I have today? You know, I could choose to lay in bed for another couple of hours, or I could choose to get out, get up and write my blog that's due this week. You know, I have a choice of what to do. So that's the first thing, no matter what the project is, no matter what you're working on, is to ask, what are my choices? How do I feel about those choices? Um, you know, what choices have I made that I'm glad I made? Or what choices do I wish I had made? So just to think about choice. And then the second thing is to ask, um, what connection do I have with this? And so what would I find meaningful? So in my book, Kala is writing about how she said, okay, I'm choosing to do my expense reports, but it was just drudgery and she hated it. And then when she asked the question about connection, she realized that Jenny Luna is the, is the gal that would receive um, the expense reports. And if Jenny doesn't get them on time, and if they're not completed correctly, Jenny is the one that suffers because then she can't meet her deadlines that needs to go into accounting, et cetera, et cetera. So Calla said that she realized that for her doing it so that Jenny wouldn't suffer because Calla has a sense of purpose around, um, you know, being the, a good friend around being the kind of person that, that helps others, not hurts people. And so she said that getting in touch with that connection was really important to her. And then Calla realized that the company had gone through a new system and she didn't have the competence she needed. So she realized that she was missing two of the three psychological needs for doing expense reports. And once she got in touch with, she was making the choice, she really wanted to do it because she cared about Jenny and she wanted to be a, a good organizational citizen. And she needed to learn more about how to do it. She actually got tutored and in my book, she, she actually wrote about that experience and how that transformed um, her expense reports. And I actually double checked it with um, Jenny Luna and Jenny confirms Calla does her expense reports correctly and on time um, every month. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's just it. It's just asking ourselves, what choices do I have? How can I have connection here? Where can I find meaning? Whether it's through a a person, through my values, through my sense of purpose, through making a contribution, and then asking ourselves, what did I grow in, uh, or how did I learn? What did I um, learn? How did I grow? And so if we were just ask ourselves at the end of every day, even, what were the choices I made? How did I make connection? And how did I grow? How did I learn? What? How did I build competence? If we could just learn to ask those questions around choice, connection, and competence, we literally would shift our motivation and it transforms the quality of that experience. I also want to get your take here. So when you're managing other people and you want them to experience motivation, what are some of those best practices that we can take on so that they're getting connected to those drivers of motivation? So if you're a leader, I think one of the things you, you need to do is start to think about the competing 
leadership competencies. So if you've got a, if you're being held accountable, for example, to drive results, I think you need to realize that your method of driving results may actually be putting people into suboptimal motivation. If, um, if they're feeling imposed on, if they're feeling like they don't have choice, if you're using your power to get things done, like do this because I told you to do it, like a parent often says to a child, um, then, uh, just your driving um, for results could undermine the very results that you're trying to get. And so as leaders, what I'm, what I'm constantly teaching, and I, um, I was just sharing with you that I, I just delivered this message to 300 leaders at, one, at the biggest bank in Russia, um, and basically asking them to every day um, ask people, okay, tell me about the choices you made today, or let's talk about the choices you made and what did you like or what didn't you like? Or let's say that you're saying to someone, I, I do a lot of work with the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA has real boundaries. You can't do this and you can't do that. What I'm trying to teach leaders is, okay, how do you have a conversation about, okay, here's what you can't do, but what can you do? What are the options you have within the boundaries? You know, we don't want you getting creative with the way you approach doctors and talk about research, but where can you be creative in terms of the way you interact with the doctors that you're selling to? And so we're, treat, we're trying to teach leaders how to have conversations, what I call motivation conversations, that really create choice, connection, and competence for people. And so to able to ask people, you know, here's a goal. Um, this is a goal that is required for your job. How do you feel about this goal? What's meaningful to you about it? How can we align this goal with values that you have? Not the values in our organization, although hopefully the goal is aligned to organizational values, but your own values. And what we found is that most leaders have never had a values conversation with the people they lead. We, we plaster the organization's values all over the walls and, you know, make sure people memorize them. But we've never asked individuals to actually think about what are your values? You know, what is it that you make, that you bring to work every single day and make decisions with? So I'm encouraging for, for leaders to have those values conversations to help create um, connection for people at work. Um, and, you know, to ask them, how do you feel like you've made a contribution, no matter what your job is? I was talking to a janitor uh, at a high school the other day, and I asked him these questions about choice, connection, and competence. And you can't believe how this man's eyes lit up. And he said, you know, there's a lot of kids at this school who come from underprivileged families, and I'm like a surrogate father. I'm kind of like the the wise sage or guru and they come to me and they tell me their problems and we talk. Now, this is a janitor at a high school who works nights because he has a day job and he is so optimally motivated in that janitorial job. And the primary reason is because he feels like he's doing something good for the kids. And he also feels that, um, that when he creates the school that's clean and pristine, that he's giving them an environment they might not have at home. So it's just fascinating to me how as a leader, you can have these conversations and reinforce the values that a person has that they might have, but never thought about, you know, maybe they haven't consciously chosen them um, and talked about them. 
And so, um, yeah, those conversations are really important. And a leader can always ask at the end of every day, what did you learn? How did you grow? Tell me about the progress that you've been making so that you're reinforcing their sense of competence. You also have a term I really want to touch upon for a moment. What is a fatal distraction and how should we counteract that? I love the concept of fatal distractions because it implies for me that we have a basic nature and that what happens when when we are acting lazy, when we are slacking, when we're doing things that we've been held accountable for doing, um, what fatal distractions implies is that there are things that outside of ourselves or the way we've interpreted things that pull us away from our basic nature of, of experiencing choice, connection, and competence. So fatal distraction, for example, is in a game wanting to win and wanting to win for ego purposes or wanting to win because there's a prize. This is why I'm so hesitant about gamification in the workplace. Um, research has shown, for example, that, you know, a lot of HR departments will say, hey, you know, join our healthy contest. If you lose the most weight during our contest period, you'll win an iPad. And what the research says is that 12 weeks after the person wins the iPad, they revert back to their old habits and actually gain the weight back plus more weight. Plus they then have this belief that, wow, I failed. I may have won the game, but I'm never going to win in the long run. And so they stop trying. So all of these um, fatal distractions, these games, these incentives, the rankings, you know, all this stuff that we've fought because of, you know, the carrots and the sticks and the achievement motivation and all those theories that are out there that counteract our true nature. So fatal distractions are, is the belief, for example, that people don't care about us and it's not worth us caring about others. Or um, a fatal distraction is that I have to do this or I'm going to fail or I have to do this or I'm going to feel guilty. Um, it's all of the, the negative self-talk is a fatal distraction. But so are all the shiny objects and the junk food that entice us in the workplace every single day. Well, Susan, tell me, anything else you want to be sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I think the thing that I really want people to hear is that motivation is a skill that if you become aware of your choices, the connection you have or don't have, and the competence that you have or don't have, that you literally can change the quality of your everyday experiences and that's what it takes to eventually achieve great things. You don't achieve great things overnight. You achieve great things because you have day-to-day -day optimal motivation that keeps you doing one step, another step, another step. And so that's what I would encourage people is just to, to really think about how they can create choice, connection, and competence in their lives. Right. Well, now, could you give us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I happened to see a young woman on the internet and she, she described herself as a self quoter. And I thought, oh my gosh, I said, I've always wanted to have the nerve to do that. And so she's inspired me. And I wondered if you might permit me to just read the last paragraph in my new book, because it really says in kind of a nutshell, what I, what I believe and I, and it's important to me. So I'm going to do a self-quote. 
<laughs> which is very audacious. A common thread of every great spiritual practice throughout history is the belief that human beings can raise their conscious awareness and live life at a higher level. The belief that change is possible entices you to greet a new day. Hope is a belief that things and you can change for the better. Not believing that you can and do change is to wonder what your human experience is about. We are beings with self-determination and the ability to reflect and mindfully choose who we are, what we believe, and how we behave. The skill to master your motivation may be your greatest opportunity to evolve, grow in wisdom, and be the light the world so desperately needs. Well, thank you. And do you have a favorite study or experiment or research? Oh, a favorite. Oh, my gosh. You know what I, I have? He, no, I don't. I have an entire book called Self-Determination Theory that is a handbook of thousands of research studies. And one of the reasons that I am so, I guess, enamored with or I have such a strong belief in the research basis for what I write about is that thousands of researchers have been doing um, very structured and progressive research for over 60 years. And it hasn't been one big research study that proves it. What they've done is systematically and very consciously and with intent built these ideas um, on really solid, solid research. So I think the message I'd like to get across is when somebody says, oh, there was a research study and here's what it proves, I would never do that. What I would say is you need to have meta studies and you need to have years and years of validating the conceptual ideas and the theoretical framework. And I'd like to think, um, I've been told that I'm representing this volume of research um, in a way that that honors the work that those researchers have done for over the past 60 years. And a favorite book? My favorite book is probably um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He didn't know about the three psychological needs, but that is what helped him thrive. And if you read that book in light of what we've talked about today, it'll give it an entirely new meaning. And how about a favorite tool you use to be awesome at your job? I can't live without my iPad. The thing I love about my iPad is that I use it for news. I use it for to keep in touch with people. I use it for social media. I use it for games. I use it to shop. I can't think of hardly any aspect of my life that I don't use my iPad for. And since I travel so much, I would say that, you know, it's, if, if, if there was an iPad chip in my forehead, I probably would be happy. And how about a favorite habit? I have an issue with the whole concept of habits. And so what I would rather say is that I have a ritual. And my morning ritual is before I put my feet on the floor, I say a prayer. And then I also ask myself, I remind myself, you know, how am I going to create choice, connection, and competence today? So you might call it a habit, but I habits are subconscious. And a ritual is something that I consciously do because I know it improves the quality of my life. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I hope people will take the what's your MO for Motivational Outlook. What's your MO survey? It's free. You get immediate results. It's on my website at www.susanfowler.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? 
One of the things that I would challenge people to do, um, I, it, my life motto is that I teach what I most need to learn. And so when I realize that there's something lacking in my life, I delve into it as if I would need to teach it to someone else, not because I want to show them up or because I want to, you know, use my expertise power or whatever. But I feel that when you can turn around and teach someone else what it is you're learning, that that's a form of mastery. So go through life and think, you know, what is it that I really need to learn? And, and maybe if I taught it to others, it would reinforce it in myself. Well, Susan, thanks so much for sharing the good word. I wish you lots of luck and motivation in all your adventures. Thank you so much, Pete. Same to you. I appreciate it so much. Always motivated and that there's no such thing as lazy. And it's quite remarkable what we do when there's no carrot or stick involved. And I've been impressed, especially as I hear more and more about hackers and IT people and computer tinkerers and like Wikipedians, you know, folks who just spend a ton of time working on something when there is no carrot or stick. It's just something they find, you know, kind of intriguing, kind of interesting. They wonder, hey, can I do it? Sure enough, it looks like those keys of motivation are at work there. And I just learned that my favorite game of all time, maybe Monopoly, but my favorite computer game for sure, is Master of Orion. It was released in 1993. It is a game where you try to conquer the galaxy as one of several alien races. Super dorky, but I was like a kid, maybe 11, 12. I was playing this a lot and I still fire it up, you know, once or twice a year. And it's just full of strategy and optimizing things. And well, it may have shaped my or revealed a lot of my interests and strengths in a fun strategy game. But anyway, I learned that somebody just recently spent so much time, clearly, I guess, reverse engineering the whole darn thing and then sort of rebuilding pieces to make little edits that fix some of the bugs, you know, that are like over 20 years old and add a couple, you know, user interface enhancements so it's a little bit more pleasant and a couple options or variations you can play. And that is just wild, you know, no carrots, no sticks. He just thought, hey, this is sort of interesting. And um, maybe it would make this game more fun and interesting and other people would benefit from it. So anyway, examples like that abound. And I think it's really intriguing if you reflect on, boy, what do people just spend tons of time doing when there's no perhaps extrinsic motivation like money or whatnot? What about like triathletes and marathoners? You know, like it just really gets the wheels turning. So I appreciate the reframes from Susan. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep515. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, David Wood, has done a whole lot of thinking about how to have great conversations when they are difficult. So I hope to catch you there. And if you just can't wait that long and want to listen to some more engaging interviews now, definitely check out the Something You Should Know podcast. They share our conviction that sometimes one little piece of wisdom can change your life forever. Their host, Mike Carruthers, interviews top experts to help you save time and money, advance your career, improve relationships, and just find more joy from life. We've interviewed a few overlapping guests, and then they've got many more folks that you haven't met yet. I met Mike at Podcast Movement. He's just such a great guy with a really impressive, buttery, smooth voice. I'm actually a little bit jealous, if I'm honest. Again, that show is called Something You Should Know. Their cover art has a yellow light bulb with a blue background behind it. You can search Something You Should Know in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the current app you're using now, or find Something You Should Know in the top rankings within the education category. Until next time, peace. 
Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.